some of you, I, I told last week, for, for work, I had to travel to Venice Beach, which sounds delightful, but driving there in the morning is not delightful. Um, anybody who's tried to drive that direction was not delightful. I left at 5 a.m. and got there at 7.50. Um, and so what was delightful is that I don't have to do that every day. Uh, but as I drove there and I got into L.A., my maps detoured me off the freeway. I take some side streets because the freeway was stopped. And I ended up driving right by the landmark Sears building. Anybody, anybody seen that down in L.A.? It's got really tall tower. It says Sears in green. And I was surprised by what I saw when I got up close. I actually went down the same street that it was on. And that building, doing some research, I found out, was built in 1927. In 1927, that building cost $5 million to build. 1927! Five million dollars, over eleven acres of acres of usable floor space in that building. The distribution center for Sears. And in 1992, it closed. And it still sits there today. It still is lit up at night. The sign. But as I drove down the street, right underneath it, it was like I was in a movie, some haunted movie because the windows are bashed out. There's actually birds flying in and out of the windows. It was such an eerie scene. And around that area are encampments of homeless people on every street, all around that area. And I think, wow, back in 1927, this came into that community. It gave jobs to thousands of people. Generations of people went and were employed there, made a living from that place, and now any hope of that is gone. Now, looking to it, there's nobody in that area looking to that building going, oh, we're going to go back to work soon. It's over. All hope of that providing anything for them is done. Like I said, it was quite, made quite an impression on me as I went by that building. And then as I was studying for this, I thought about 2,000 years ago. You know, Jesus made some promises. Jesus promised to give eternal life to those who would believe in him. And many believed, yet he was betrayed. And he was put on trial. And he was falsely condemned. And he was crucified, murdered. Prior to that, you know that he was flogged, beaten nearly to death. And the one who promised eternal life is now dead. 2,000 years ago, that's what happened. The people who found hope. In this man who believed in the words of this man, who trusted in what he preached, has now died. The hope is gone. What raw emotions do you think ran through those who had their hope, their trust in Christ, who believed that he was going to save them, and yet they watch him be crucified on a cross? What emotions do you think went through them? There's a lot of raw emotions. We can pick out some. Some are grief. The one whom they loved, whom they trusted, is gone, who has died. There could be fear. Now what? There could be doubt. Like, what does it mean now? What is this going to do? What's going to happen? All these emotions could be racing through their minds. And this morning, we're going to see these emotions on display. Now, I'm looking out, and all of you are living and breathing, which means you have emotions too. Even though you don't necessarily control your emotions, things just happen. Something wells up within you. 
becomes an indicator that something else is going on. This morning, we're going to look at the grief of Mary, the fear of the disciples, and the doubt of Thomas. If you're taking notes this morning, the title of the sermon is, My Lord and My God. And if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do this morning, John chapter 20 is where we find ourselves picking up where we left off last time together. John chapter 20. For those of you that haven't been with us, Jesus has been crucified. He has died on the cross. He is then taken to a tomb, and he is buried there. And Mary Magdalene ends up showing up early on Sunday morning. And when she gets there, the tomb is open. She looks in, and guess what? Jesus is not there. He's gone. And so she runs to tell John and to tell Peter, Jesus is gone. I don't know where he's at. I don't know what they've done with him. And they then run to the tomb. I like as it tells us in the beginning of John chapter 20 that John, or, or the one whom Jesus loved, outran Peter, got to the tomb first, and again there he peeks inside and sees there is no Jesus. Peter then follows suit but goes straight inside and sees there is no Jesus. And this is after they see all these things. John says he remembers what Jesus said. He must rise from the dead, and he believed. And then it says they went home. And here's where we pick up in verse 11. If you look at your Bibles, verse 11 starts in John chapter 20. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Mary has come back after she's told John and Peter, and she's back at the tomb. It's still empty. And she's outside weeping. Shows her sincere devotion. And that raw emotion, it's fueled by her love for Jesus. The other Gospels tell us some other things about Mary Magdalene. It tells us that Mary was the one who had seven unclean spirits, seven demons cast out of her. This is this Mary. The same Mary. Mary had a dark past. She knew what it was like to be enslaved to darkness. And when Jesus cast the demons out of her, Mary experienced a new life. This Mary. It was a new life that was given to her by Christ. A life that was radically different from the life that she had experienced before. It was all new. Darkness had turned to light. Enslavement had turned to freedom. Depression had turned to joy. Mary had experienced the freedom found in the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And that is what has led to her deep devotion. She is the first one on sight, the first one to come, and she is now in great despair, not knowing what has happened. Mary knew what she used to be, and Mary knows what she is now in Christ. And if you're here this morning, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know what you used to be, and you know who you are now. And that newness in Christ should compel you in devotion to Christ, just as we see in Mary. Complete devotion, devoted to him. And yet this Mary saw something that we did not see, and we're not eyewitnesses. Her Lord was murdered on a cross right before her eyes. Imagine the heartache of the one whom she loved, the one whom she was devoted to, 
crucified right before her, like her heart being thrown in a blender. All she knew is that she loved Christ. And with a tornado whipping through her mind, all she could put together was that she hurt. She hurt. Her Lord was murdered, and now his body is missing. Look again with me. We read here, John chapter 20, verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Church, she's already looked in there. She's looking again. Her heart is aching. She's still looking. Could he possibly be here? Did I miss something? And she's looking again. But when she looks in, we see in verse 12, she saw two angels in white. Now, I like the way Luke put it. Luke said there were two men in dazzling apparel. Now, church, if you're in your right mind and you see two men in dazzling apparel, don't you think something about what you're seeing? But Mary's hurting. She's grieving. She's overwhelmed with emotion. And there sitting before her where the body of Jesus was laying or had been laying is one angel sitting where the head would have been and one sitting where the feet. That's what we read in verse 12. And it says in verse 13, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So this, this whole interaction, it's just crazy to me. Because in, in, in my right mind, I would think, wait a minute, these people are different. These aren't just normal people who decided to take a rest inside a tomb. They're in dazzling apparel. There's something different about them. But it tells us that she's so overcome by grief that the significance of these two men in dazzling apparel was overseen by him. All she knows is, I don't know where Jesus is. I don't know what happened to his body. And they ask her, woman, why are you weeping? Now, do you think it's an accident the angels are there? Do you think they just happen to take a break from what they normally do? Want to sit inside there? This is all intentional. They were there. And it wasn't unknowingly, it was intentional. They knew why she was weeping. Then why ask her the question, woman, why are you weeping? We know that weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. The angel's question was intended to prime the pump for what Mary was about to see. Mary's only answer to them was, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Now, I'm thinking, she's looking at these angels, she's talking to them, and, and I'm adding a little bit here, and, and, but somehow she turns around, and, and I'm just thinking that, you know, the angels are like doing a little head bob or a little eyebrow, like, look over there. Because something gets her attention to turn around. And we see in verse 14, having said this, Mary turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Stop pause, time out. What? She's there looking for Jesus. Where is the body? They just say, hey, why are you weeping? <laughs> she looks, there's Jesus. What was the last image that Mary had of Jesus? Bloodied on a cross and dead. Body being taken down dead being wrapped and put in a tomb. That is what she saw. And now before her is Jesus in a glorious state. In her mind, Jesus is still dead. I'm looking for his body. 
I'm not prepared to see Jesus in front of me. And especially the image I have of Jesus, beaten beyond recognition. This is not who's standing in front of her. And she says, she didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, verse 15, woman, why are you weeping? Wait a minute, we've heard that already. Repeats the same thing. He says, whom are, whom are you seeking? And she supposed him to be the gardener. Stop there. Poor Jesus. <laughs> Do you remember where the tomb was? It was in a garden. So she thought this is the person who takes care of all the area. And so it's the gardener she's going to refer to. And she says to him, sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. Amazing. Verse 16, Jesus then responds to her and says one word, her name, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. What happened, church? He was talking to her. He was saying, whom are you seeking? But when he called her by name, that illuminated everything. Jesus already taught back in John chapter 10. He said in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and they know me. Calls him by name. Mary. That's my Lord. Now, this is the first appearance of Jesus since the resurrection, since he was raised from the grave. First person that he appears to, Mary Magdalene the one whom he cast out seven demons from. Now stop for a second, and let's say you got to write all this. You got to write God's script of what's going to happen. All right, God's son is going to die. He's going to raise. Who should we have him appear to first? Huh, let me think. John's writing, and I'd say, John, say, how about the one whom Jesus loved? Well, let's pick him. Or what about, let's, let's stick it to Pontius Pilate and let him appear to him first. So, hey, I'm back. Think of the narrative you'd write. Who would you have Jesus appear to first? Peter? Maybe affirming his faith? Bringing him back into fellowship? Remember the one who denied Jesus three times? Who would you have him appear to? But here we see it's Mary Magdalene. And it's during a deep time of grief. She is grieving over the loss of her Lord. Now I want to put out, put out to you the idea that Jesus appeared to a woman first. Because there is this nonsense out there that Christianity suppresses the importance of women. Think about this. Jesus rises from the dead, appears to a woman first. Previously in John's gospel, Jesus first revealed his identity as the Messiah to a woman at a well in Samaria. You know, the Bible says that we're neither male nor female, that we are one in Christ. That's so important to see that Jesus appears here to Mary. The shepherd knows his sheep, and when he calls Mary, it's known to her immediately. Rabboni. And then she clings to him. You could imagine the one grieving. Think of the emotional change of grieving over the loss to going, Jesus is right here. And she responds by clinging to him. Look at the response of Jesus. Verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. Church, we've got to be careful how we read this. I really doubt he said, don't cling to me. I'm sure he was very affectionate and very loving. But do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended 
to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Why is this so important? Why is he saying, hey, don't cling to me, I have yet ascended. Do you remember when he taught them previous of why he had to go? And he said, where I go, you can't come. But he said, it's to your advantage that I go. Anybody remember why? That he would send him. John chapter 16, verse 7. Jesus said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, put, put your mind around this. Mary's grieving. Her Lord's body is gone. He appears to her. To her. She knows it's him. And he says, Mary, I know you love me and you want to be with me, but you've you got to go. You need to go tell the others. You think there was a war inside of her? Absolutely. What? Look at verse 18, though. Verse 18 says, Mary Magdalene went. What? How many of us would have been like, hey, God, they'll find out later. <laughs> like, send somebody else. I'm going to stay here with you, Jesus. I'm staying here with you. Mary Magdalene, verse 18 says, went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to this is phenomenal to me as I just think of the emotion that was going on here. The emotion to be with Jesus. The emotion to cling to him. And yet now she's told, sorry, Mary, you have to leave me again. I just lost you. I just lost you. Her devotion to Christ would cause her to obey his every word. Though her love for him would be to want to be with him, her devotion to him would cause her to obey. And immediately when Jesus said go, she didn't argue with him. She did as he said. In Mary's deepest grief, Christ meets her and comforts her right where she's at. Her grief is turned to joy. When I think about, oh, what a Savior that we have. Mary would be grieving. It's an immense amount of emotion. And Jesus meets her, appears to her first. The next set of people we see is the disciples. We see the fear of the disciples. Look at verse 19 with me. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Okay, so they're locked inside, and it tells us why. For fear of the Jews. What had they just seen happen to Jesus? Didn't end well. Where his followers? So what do we think is going to happen to us? Not going to end well. So they are trembling inside this room in fear of the Jews. Everything is locked. All the deadbolts. Everything's closed up. They're locked in. And then somebody else appears among them. Jesus. He stood among them. Now, there's a lot of controversy. If you read through all the scholars, did Jesus, like, miraculously open the door? Did he just come in in his, his glorified body? I'm going to go with what it says. Doors are locked, and Jesus appears among them. You figure out how he got there. Pretty sure he was able to just come on in, on his own. And the first thing he says is, peace be with you. Why does he say peace? Because they're in fear. They are trembling. 
They're worried. And it says in verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. What does this mean? Jesus appears before them. They're scared. They're thinking the Jews are going to get us. They're going to kill us. And then Jesus appears, and they don't know what has happened. Just like Mary, they run away. Who this is. Jesus looks at them. Come, see it. Know it's me. It says he showed them his hands, his side, and when they saw it, everyone, this is the Lord. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus came among them. Fears gone. Now confidence is his Jesus. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And look what he does. He gives them a commission. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Here we see John's record of the Great Commission. You guys know the Great Commission? Go into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. This is John's record of Jesus saying, look, I was sent, the Father sent me, and now I'm sending you, and I'm equipping you with the Spirit. You guys see that's all three persons of the Godhead? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All three of them are going out in this commission. Now, standing before him are ten disciples. Now, many of you go, wait, weren't there twelve? Okay, what's happened to one of them? One of them went out and betrayed Jesus and ended up killing himself. There's one other guy missing here. Thomas, as we find out. Thomas is not among them. There are ten people there that Jesus is commissioning to them that you are now to go out and you are now to be fishers of men, to go out and share the good news. You have seen the risen Lord. But you know what? It wasn't just the ten that stood before him that he was speaking to. You know, it was you as well. The commission goes to us as well. That we are now being sent. That we have been commissioned as they have with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, it says that after saying these things, he said, receive the Holy Spirit. So he breathed on them. Ten of these disciples, they got a foretaste of what would happen as the Holy Spirit descended on Pentecost. They got to experience it, the blessing of it on this day. And in parting that Holy Spirit, Jesus says something that we go, what? He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. Is he saying they have the authority to give salvation to people? Was well, he saying that they or, or maybe the church has all authority on who gets saved and who doesn't save? Was he saying that at all? He was simply saying you are now the human agency. Human agency that will confirm what's already established in heaven. That those who receive Christ, that they are saved. Those who reject Christ, they're not. Who's forgiven, who's not. Church, you can identify that as well. Those who repent and believe, you could affirm what they've said. This is what's been decided and established in heaven. The question then is, does this only apply to those 2,000 years ago? Does it apply to you today? Do you have your sins forgiven? 
know, if we just look at what happened in that room 2,000 years ago and don't apply it to us today, we've missed it. Do you have your sins forgiven? Have you repented and trusted in Christ? As we'll look, about, look at, Lord willing, next time we're together, because that's the entire reason John has recorded this, is that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that in believing in him, you might have eternal life. What is the point of this? And just as Jesus met Mary in her grief and turned her grief into joy, Jesus meets his disciple in their fear and turns their fear now into boldness. The same people you're afraid of, I'm sending you out with the power of the Spirit to go out and share the gospel. Folks, I can't do that in my flesh. I can't muster up that kind of boldness. So he says, here's my spirit. Go. No more shall they be hiding because of fear. Soon they shall be bold witnesses willing to give their lives for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, this morning we see the third emotion is doubt, and that's in the place of Thomas, the doubt of Thomas. Look at verse 24 with me. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Stop there for a second. Do you think it's kind of weird that they're all together, but Thomas is not there? Where was he? Where was he? They're all together. Thomas is the only one not there. Where is he? You know the answer to that? We don't know. And yet there's plenty of people who write where they think he was and what they think he was doing. We don't know. All we know is he wasn't in attendance. And during the gathering, he missed a major blessing. Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Thomas didn't participate in that because he wasn't there. Being together, the corporate worship, being together in unity, receiving the blessings of God, Thomas missed out. We see in verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. (laughs) But he said to them, look, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Pretty adamant statement there. What is going on here? Now, the other gospels tell us that he just assumed they saw a ghost. You guys saw a ghost. You didn't see Jesus. Now, a ghost doesn't have a physical body. So he's saying, look, if it's a ghost, I'm not going to be able to put my finger in there and put my finger in the side. But if it's really Jesus, I can do it. It wasn't some sick, twisted, like he wants to stick his finger in some wounds and see what it feels like. He's saying, I want to verify it's truly him. And before we, you know, throw Thomas under the bus, because he's often referred to in a negative light. When we hear about Thomas, he gets all these nicknames that aren't good nicknames. People call him Doubting Thomas. You know, he's often quoted as being the one who was pessimistic amongst the disciples. He was the doubtful one, the one who questioned everything. But I think if we read what we see in the Bible about Thomas, we see that others have read way too much into it. We don't see any of that. Our first peek at Thomas was in John chapter 11. Put this back in context. Lazarus was sick. His sisters come to Jesus and say, our brother's dying. He, he needs you. And Jesus is like, yeah, okay, well, whatever. We're, we're busy doing ministry. Like, what? You need to come now. Jesus tarries on, does some more ministry until Lazarus dies. And then he decides, I'm going to go back to Bethany. Well, guess what happened in Bethany before that? The Jews had picked up stones to try to kill him. 
So now he's telling his disciples, hey, guys, we're going back to Bethany. What? Last time we were there, it wasn't good. They tried to kill you last time, Jesus. And if they're going to kill you, guess what? They're going to try to kill us too. Can we do something else? Well, Thomas doesn't have the idea of doing something else. Jesus said, we're going back to Bethany. He says, Lazarus is only sick. It's not the kind that's unto death, even though we know Lazarus ended up being dead for four days. Jesus called him forward. So what does Thomas say? We see the first time he speaks in John's recording of him. In John chapter 11, verse 16, he says, let us also go that we might die with him. Now, you can read that in a snarky way. You could read that in a way that would be like, oh, just, okay, we're going to go on this death march with Jesus. Great. He was one of the followers of Christ. He was chosen to follow. He loved Jesus, and he was saying, look, if we're going and that's what it is, we're going to die with him. Let's go. But depending on how we read in the Scriptures, we could paint this guy out to be the bad guy of the 12 and free Judas. Judas was the one that betrayed Jesus. Thomas was loyal. He loved Jesus, and he's willing to die with Jesus. I want you to keep that in mind as we read what we're about to read in John chapter 20. Look at verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. What did Thomas know? He knew that Jesus died. And he knew that he was buried. Thomas is not saying anything different than you and I would have said. Like, what are you talking about? The man is dead. We saw him die. He was buried. If you're saying he's alive, there's got to be some evidence. I want to see the evidence he's alive. But unless I see it, unless I place my hand in it, I won't believe. Thomas had reason to doubt. Just like the disciples were in that room fearful of the Jews, they weren't thinking Jesus was going to appear before them. He had every right to be doubting. Look what happens in verse 26 and 27. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time. Good job, Thomas. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus met Thomas exactly where he was in his doubt. Exactly what he said he needed, Jesus met him right where he was. Christ came and solidified Thomas's faith, saying, here I am. Put your hand there. He didn't say, Thomas, why did you ever doubt? He didn't wag his finger and say, why didn't you just believe everybody? He said, here I am. Here's the evidence you asked for. And there would be no more doubt in Thomas's mind. There would only be confidence, his confidence in Christ. We've seen Mary's grief. We've seen the fear of the disciples. And we've seen the doubt of Thomas. So this morning I want to close by asking you some questions. First, who told Jesus that Mary was grieving at the tomb? Who told Jesus that Mary was grieving at the tomb? How about this one? Who told Jesus that the disciples were full of fear in the upper room? Who told Jesus that? How about this one? Who told Jesus 
about Thomas's doubts about what he had said. Who told Jesus the things? And the answer is nobody. Nobody. I want you to think about the implications of that. Nobody told him, but he knew. Jesus knew. Isn't it a frightening thing, but also a reassuring thing at the same time that Jesus knows everything? It's a frightening thing. Jesus knows everything. He knows your heart. He knows your thoughts. He knows your deeds. He knows everything. And if you do not know him as Lord and Savior, oh my, you should tremble. But he knows everything you're thinking everything you're doing, everything you think you're getting away with, Jesus knows. And that he is the judge. To know this about Christ, for those who do not know him personally, it is a treacherously scary thing. But he knows everything. And that we will all be accountable for all our rebellion against him, for all our disobedience, for all of our lawless deeds terrifying to me if I don't have forgiveness of Jesus. If I have not received what he has done when he went to that cross to pay the penalty for my sins, that it is finished, it is all paid for, that by turning, repenting, and trusting in him, I can be forgiven of all my sins. And now it's not as terrifying as I took it. Because now my sins have been forgiven. And if you were a believer this morning, the fact that Jesus knows everything about you should also be very reassuring and very comforting to you. That Jesus knows you in your grief. He knows you in your fears. He knows you in your doubts. He knows all of your concerns. And guess what? He's with you in your grief. He's with you in your fears. He's with you in your doubts. The same Jesus. He's the one that turns grief into joy. He turns fear into boldness. He turns doubts into confidence. So that every one of us may rejoice and say, my Lord and my God. This was Thomas' response to Jesus. My Lord and my God. Friend, if you are here today and you do not know the saving grace of Jesus Christ, perhaps you know about going to church, perhaps you know about the scriptures, but you have never submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Turn to him, submit to him. Be forgiven of all your sins. That this Jesus that knows everything about you, you're not hiding anything. And you can be forgiven of it all. No more shame and no more guilt. But you can experience what Mary experienced. That though her past was dark, her life is now new. From darkness to light. Is that for you? If you have done that, if you've received Christ, know that you're not alone. He is with you at all times. Every raw emotion that goes through you, every response that you have to things, that Christ is with you to strengthen you, to sustain you, to help you endure till the end. He is faithful. Father, 
amazing to look at your word that you have given to us to see once again the hope that we have in Christ. Though this life might bring times of great grief, we have a comforter and that we have hope. And there may be times where we fear that you would be our strength a stronghold, a strong tower. Father, may be times of doubt. Lord, you would strengthen our faith. Position our feet so we could stand. Father, I pray that right now your spirit would minister to each of us individually, that you would encourage us who know you, that you would draw anyone in this place who does not know you to Christ. That you would receive all honor and glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.